Welcome to the first ever episode of the Gladiators Den podcast. Here, I'll cover the key takeaways from UFC 284, the current state of affairs regarding the UFC pound-for-pound rankings, a look ahead of the UFC fight night this weekend, and much, much more. Without further ado, let's get to it. So over the weekend, the UFC returned to Australia, and we were treated to an incredible crowd. For me, it was really refreshing to see the crowd really get behind their own fighters, considering just a few weeks ago, we witnessed Glover give his retirement speech to a pretty much an empty arena in Brazil. It just seems so disrespectful how a legend of the sport, who has been a role model for Brazilian fighters, had to give his retirement speech watching his own people leave the arena. And I understand that Brazilians are quite renowned for being a hostile crowd, but even the disrespect they showed Brandon Moreno by throwing the beer cups at him and things like that, it was just really nice to see Australia be essentially the complete opposite. Anyway, we're going to go through the card of UFC 284 in chronological order. So we're starting with Zubara Tukugov versus Elvis Brenner. Now, the first fight, we had the controversy of the judges. One judge gave the scorecards 29-28 to Brenner, giving him rounds 1 and 3. 29-28 was another judge for Tukugov with round 3 to Brenner. And then one judge gave Brenner three rounds. How on earth did that judge give round two to Brenner? Round one was close, but Tukugov was countering with the left well. The only thing I can think of that may have swayed the judges to Brenner was the cut that Tukugov got towards the end of the round. Now, I understand that damage is the main thing the judges look for. So the cut is a huge visual. So I can get on board with that. A close round, you give it to the guy that seemingly has caused the most damage. Round two was just a, a blowout for Tukugov. His counter-striking was crisp throughout the whole round, and he made Brenner's attacks look wild and avoided any real damage. I just don't understand on what planet you can give that round to Brenner. Round three was a closer round. Not much damage was dealt either way. Tukugov was clinching a lot, and Brenner had a bit of a flurry later on. I still would have given that round to Tukugov, so 29-28. It just shows the the discrepancy we have in how bad the judges are in MMA. If one judge is giving all three rounds to Brenner, whilst another judge is giving two rounds to his opposition, I just this this needs to be a way that UFC judges or MMA judges in general are held accountable. Because what checks are made on judges' performances? There needs to be some sort of vetting process when judges are employed. Or some sort of assessment board that assesses the judges after each pay-per-view or after each card. To make sure that we keep the best judges judging our fights. And I'm sure a company as big as the UFC could employ some ex-fighters or some ex-judges that could evaluate them. Because if you think about the way the UFC does its business, you have a show money, which you are guaranteed just for showing up to fight. And then you have your win bonus. So you only get that money if you win. So the fighters that are fighting earlier on on the card, they're probably only getting a 12k show money and maybe 12k win money. 
And when you take into consideration that they have to pay their taxes, they have to pay their team, their coaches, managers, agents, things like that, they don't get much. So when you're only fighting three times a year, one bad decision from the judges is going to affect that fighter financially, which in turn is probably going to affect their career. It maybe it doesn't make as much of a difference as you get more profound into your career and you're a bigger name because you have your sponsorships and things like that. But these fighters who are lower in the card, they don't have the big money sponsorships. They don't have the big advertising deals. I just don't understand how we've, the UFC has been growing and the MMA as a sport has been growing over the last 20 years and we still have this same problem with the judges. Open scoring has been talked about and I, I think it's crazy how we still don't have it. Combat sports is the only sport you don't know who's winning until the, the sport has ended, the game has ended. There should be open scoring or some sort of assessment. At least with open scoring, you can go into the rounds knowing whether you're winning or losing rather than just taking a guess. So many times you will hear the coaches say to the fighter in between rounds, we don't know who's winning or it's a close round. You've got to go for it this round. If they have open scoring, they will know. They will go into that last round knowing they need the finish. It will change the way a lot of fighters approach fights as well. I just feel the scoring process in general is a little bit outdated. The next fight I want to talk about was Jack Jenkins versus Don Shannis. Now, I was really looking forward to this fight personally. Jack Jenkins, of course, was a Dana White Contender Series winner. And I remember watching him throw those elbows from top position during his uh, Contender Series win. So I was really intrigued to see how he would fare in front of a home crowd. And being the first Aussie up on the card, it was really good to see him get that reception that we all kind of expected. Um, During the fight, he did show us great cardio. He showed us great grappling. He landed four out of his five takedowns. And his striking was crisp. I do believe that he did lose the striking in terms of numbers. But 82% of his total lands was significant strikes. Which just shows that when he was landing, he was landing with power. And his opponent, Don Shannis, apparently was leaving for an x-ray after the fight. According to Jenkins in his post-fight interview sorry his post-fight press conference and he was getting an x-ray on his leg which Jenkins boasted that that would be five legs that he's broken in his career in fighting five legs broken from leg kicks he also went on to say that he would like to fight three or four more times this year and I think as a new fighter it's very important to keep yourself active especially in the beginning of your career It just increases your reputation among fans and among the company in general and gives you that boost for your brand that you're going to need going forward. He definitely is a fun addition to the featherweight division and I'm very excited and intrigued to see where he goes from here and who he fights next. The very next fight on the card was Jamie Malarkey versus Francisco Pedro. Malarkey won a unanimous decision that was 30-27 across the board looking in control the whole time and he looked a lot more convincing in this fight in comparison to his last fight which was a very close win over Michael Johnson. What was most interesting about this was he called out Paddy Pimblett after his fight 
claiming that he would knock Paddy out. Now, I can't imagine this is a fight that Paddy would take, considering Paddy's star power. Although, Paddy Pimler is quite a unique fighter because he's one of those fighters, it doesn't really matter who you put him in against. He's still going to draw a lot of eyes. But I did see on Twitter today that Drew Drober is claiming that he has signed a contract to fight Paddy Pimblett. He's just waiting on Pimblett to sign his end. Now that is an interesting fight. Drober versus Paddy is a massive step up in competition. Paddy looked... It's hard to say. He didn't look great in his last fight. Arguably he lost as well. So to fight Drober next... I mean, if he was to win, it would give him that push, probably put him into the top 15 rankings. Droba seems to be the gatekeeper for the top 15. If you can get a win over Drew Droba, then you deserve to be ranked in the top 15. I just feel like Droba's chin, his aggressive fighting style, he would be a tough matchup for Paddy. I would probably give Droba the edge, honestly. But Paddy is... He's an anomaly. I mean, he's unique with his striking and his, striking and his grappling. And, you know, a, a very close fight like he had in his last fight is... It's always beneficial for the fighter. Maybe it takes his ego down a notch or two. It gives him something to work on. I, I think Droba versus Paddy would be an extremely exciting fight for the fans. I just don't know if Paddy would take it. If he does, hats off to him. I'm, I'm all in on that fight. Following the next fight, it was Brazilian fighter Cletson Rodriguez who smoked Shannon Ross in less than a minute. Now, I feel like this finish has gone under the radar due to the rest of the card and, you know, the controversy that we've had in the, pay, in the pay-per-view's main event. But Cletson was also a Dana White Contender Series winner who was 0-1 going into this fight, with his opponent, Shannon Ross, also 0-1. So this was a perfect fight for somebody to make a statement, and Rodriguez really did that. He's o- This was only his 10th pro fight, so he's a flyweight prospect in the making, and he has his whole career ahead of him. I just feel like when you have such an exciting card that we had, a performance like that can go under the radar pretty easily. On any other card, this is a finish that we would probably still be talking about. Because his striking was dynamic in, in the short space of time that we did see him, it's not it's just not getting as much coverage as it probably would have done on another card. Either way, he made a statement and I feel like there's a few exciting fights we can make for somebody like that. Me in particular, I would like to see him fight Jake Hadley next. Jake Hadley's riding a two-fight two win streak, if I remember correctly. Also another flyweight prospect. So, if you put those two together, maybe next, maybe after one more win for Rodriguez. I don't think Hadley has a fight lined up. And considering he beat his opponent in less than a minute, he took no damage. He could get back in there. He could get back in there again pretty soon. And going back to the point I made earlier, when you're first starting out in a company like the UFC, you want to get as many fights as you can under your belt quickly. You want to get that momentum behind you. So I feel like a fight 
against somebody like Jake Hadley would be would be great. After this fight, we saw Josh Kulibau versus Melsik Bagdasarayan. Now, I'm almost 100% certain I've just butchered his name, but if you watch the fight, you know who I mean. I did make a mention of Josh Kulibau's performance on my YouTube channel. So, if you're one of the two listeners listening to this now, go subscribe to my YouTube channel, The Gladiators Den MMA on YouTube, and I also have an Instagram page under the same name. Uh, This was one of the breakout performances for me because after a difficult first round in which I which I thought he lost he had that low blow he got the the shot to the nuts and it was a really bad one it was a it was a really really hard strike and you're allowed five minutes um, you're allowed five minutes time to recover and he didn't take the full five minutes and then in between rounds he was complaining that he couldn't breathe his cornerman asked him is it is it his nose because his nose was all cut and busted and he was saying no no it's not it's not my nose so he still couldn't breathe in between rounds properly because of the low blow why not just take the five minutes you see it time and time again when fighters have a shot a cup shot and they get back into fighting straight away now i understand later in the fight you don't want your opponent to recover um, you don't want them to the momentum to stop if you're winning a fight, but in this sense he wasn't. He was arguably losing the first round. It's still early on. Take the five minutes. Is it an ego thing? Like, do the fighters are they are they so macho they they have to fight fight straight away? Take the full five minutes, recover properly, and then get back to fighting. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't think I've ever seen a fighter take the full five minutes. Either way, um, his performance, I thought, was amazing. He first came onto my radar with his draw against Charles Jourdain. His only loss is against Jalen Turner. He's 11-1, I believe, after this win. He had a split decision win over Songu Choi as well. So even though he's only 28 and he's pretty early into his career, he's fought three tough opponents already. The comeback for me, like I just mentioned, was was one of the breakout performances. He was dealing with the adversity of the low blow. He'd lost the first round. And when he came out for the second round, he just instantly was the aggressor. It's like he was going to get the finish as quickly as possible because he was hurt. And it's we've got to mention that the poetic finish was the choke. Because if you watch the face-offs... Melsic, I'm not even going to try and pronounce his surname, grabbed him by the throat and was choking him during the press conference and they had to split them up. And then to finish him with a submission choke, that was great. So yeah, he was one of my breakout performance performers and he's definitely one to watch in that division. Then we had the final fight of the prelims, which we saw Tyson Pedro get beat by Bukaskas. Now, it's worth noting that Bukaskas took this fight on two weeks' notice. He was previously cut from the UFC, took a short notice fight, and then beat Tyson Pedro, who was a heavy favorite. Now, it's hard to say whether it was just a bad performance from Pedro, or he was just given a good unknown opponent. Because there's so many MMA fighters that are really, really good that we just don't know about. 
he was a Cage Warriors champion, I believe. Took this fight on short notice and truly delivered. He looked in control of the fight for the majority of the fight. He was outstriking Pedro. He was stuffing the takedowns. Pedro seemed to be tired after the first round. Now, Pedro had won two fights previous to this. And the hype behind him was pretty incredible. He's been touted as being the next big thing in that division. But maybe this has put a pin in his progress. It's hard to say because obviously people do just have bad individual performances. Or has he just been found out? I personally expected Pedro to to just run through him. So I for one was very impressed with Bukaskas's performance and also surprised with how bad Pedro performed. Now, I don't want to put Pedro in an early grave and say that he was just all hype. Performing in front of your home crowd doesn't always have a positive effect. I mean, take a look at Derek Lewis. He's performed in Texas twice, I think, maybe three times prior. And he's lost every single time. And he said he hates performing in front of his hometown. It just adds an additional pressure that that not all fighters deal with well. Obviously, it does have the adverse effect on a lot of people. And they perform better with the crowd behind them. With their friends and family and things like that watching. But for some fighters, it can just be draining. The adrenaline dump that some fighters will get after the walking is real. Maybe that's why Pedro was tired. I find it hard to believe that he would undertrain or not prepare properly for his opponent. It's very hard to to assume that, especially considering he's fighting in front of his home crowd. It's just it's just difficult for me to predict what happened. I do hold hope for Pedro. I put it down to a bad performance. Or we were just all underestimating Bukaskas. This could be one of those wins that we look back on. Like we saw with Volkanovski against Chad Mendes. Chad Mendes retired when he got beat by Volkanovski. And then Volkanovski went on to be the best fighter in the world. He didn't know that at the time. He thought I'd just been beaten by a nobody. My time's done. Chad Mendes definitely had more fights in him. He just didn't know that. Now, that's an extreme example. I'm not saying Bukaskas is going to be the next best fighter. I'm just saying that maybe Pedro... And the MMA fans had been underestimating his fighter. And when we see Bukaskas fight in the future, we're going to be like, oh wow, this guy is actually just a really good fighter. It wasn't that Pedro was bad. But only time will tell. Anyways, that's the prelims covered. So let's move on to the main card now. And first up, we had Parker Porter against Justin Taffer. Now, what surprised me with this fight is... Parker Porter is no slouch. I genuinely thought he would be too experienced to to go out in the way he did. I thought he would avoid the dogfight that Taffer was going to bring and he would probably edge out a decision. But the way Taffer just came out guns blazing kind of gave me the remnants of Mark Hunt. I mean, he kind of looks like him a little bit as well, but the way he fights with that... With that huge power and, you know, going out all glazing, he really reminded me of Mark Hunt. But what's most interesting about this fight is Justin Taffer has only had nine professional fights after this one. I think this was his fourth fight in the UFC. 
I think he's 29 years old as well, so he's still pretty young. And he's fresh into his career. Before this fight, Parker Porter had lost to Jaden Almeida. Now, we all know how good Almeida is. So, that loss is nothing to be ashamed of. But prior to that, Parker Porter was 6-1 and one in his last seven. So, this is a significant win for somebody coming into the heavyweight division. So, it makes me think, what, what next? If you can knock out Parker Porter, who is a veteran in that fashion he's got to be one more win away from the top 15 so I feel like one more win and again to the point I made earlier and I'm going to keep going back to this but when you're trying to get some momentum when you have these quick finishes you should have quick turnaround fights when you don't take much damage you should try and get back in there as quickly as possible but anyway I think Tanner Bosa or maybe Chris Dorcas would be a good fight. I think stylistically they don't they don't present him too much too much danger and it should be it's a big enough name to get him into the top 15. So yeah, with Taffer's power, he has the charisma as well. He definitely has some star power and the fans loved him as well. So he's definitely one to keep an eye on. And I do think that this win was a big statement for him. I've just realized as well that I totally missed the Jimmy Crute fight. So let's quickly go back to that one. Jimmy Crute was going into this fight as a slight favorite after losing two of his previous fights last year. So it was kind of a a comeback fight in front of his home crowd. Something that he needed to get his career back on track. He was touted to be one of the big prospects in the light heavyweight division. After the knockout loss to the now champion, Jamal Hill. And the leg kick defeat against Anthony Smith. So two huge names that he lost to. Nothing to be ashamed of. But he really needed to make a statement to, to get some momentum again. I thought he would have won. I do think... A draw is fair. Manyfield was was surprising throughout the fight. I just think uh, was was the point deduction harsh? I mean, I'm gonna have to go back and look at it. When I first saw it, I thought maybe a warning. I can't remember if there was any prior warnings to that. I'm going off memory now. I've not rewatched that fight yet. But I think it's pretty simple. With a fight that ends in a draw, then you should pretty much just always run it back. Especially when it's something like a point deduction. Jimmy Crew is quite an interesting character because he was saying that his losses were coming down to his life outside of training. He was drinking and going on benders a lot. He claimed to have cleaned up his act and he was training, he was clean, he quit drinking... He did look good, but I think Menefield was just a step ahead. So, I mean, maybe the draw is kind of lucky for him. Doesn't give him the three-fight losing streak. And it allows him to go back to the drawing board and prepare again for a rematch. I'm still quite big on Jimmy Crude. I think he's really young. He's like 26, right? If I, Yeah, I think he's 26. 
So if he can if he can keep being professional, keep his act clean, focus on a rematch, go back to the drawing board, make some adjustments. Uh, I'm going to go back with Jimmy Crew and say that he wins the rematch. Anyway, the next fight was the fight I was most looking forward to outside of the main event. Jack Della Maddalena versus Randy Brown. The question that was on everybody's lips before this fight was just how good is Jack Della Maddalena? So before we get to that, let's just go back to his early career where he was finished in his first two fights and then won 13 fights in a row before he fought Randy Brown. He was another Dana White Contender Series winner fighting on this card. And he had three first round finishes before Randy Brown. So submitting Randy Brown in the first round takes him to five wins in the UFC, 14 fight wins in a row, and four first round finishes. Randy Brown was quietly riding a four fight win streak going into this fight. Randy Brown has excellent stand-up. He has really, really good boxing. The main question for me was, before this fight, how was Jack Della Maddalena going to deal with an opponent in Randy Brown's size? I think this is the first time he fought somebody who was clearly had the height and reach advantage. So when you're a good boxer and you have that reach advantage and you can utilize your jabs and your strikes well, it does pose problems. The way I envisioned... Madalena to win in this fight was to weather an early storm and come on strong later in the rounds. Chaos Williams gave Randy Brown some problems in their fight, so I had confidence that Madalena could stand and trade with him. It was the reach advantage and the height advantage that I was curious to see how he dealt with it. So I was so surprised when I saw him blitz through him in the way he did. The question now is just how good is Jack Della Madalena? I mean, how how many times have you seen a fighter burst onto the scene in impressive fashion like this? Four fights in the UFC since the Contender Series win and four first-round finishes. And Randy Brown is a really tough opponent. He is no slouch. I was super, super impressed with what he did. And I believe Jack Della Maddalena called out Vicente Luque, which is a crazy fight that would be such an interesting fight for me and it would propel him deep into the rankings top 10 maybe higher and that's a huge test and one i definitely want to see it's just a question of how high is the ceiling for him now because we've not seen him put in any precarious situations really he's not had any serious tests he's blown every single every single opponent out quickly so, yeah, it's kind of reminiscent to Conor McGregor's rise. He blitzed through all his opponents easily and got to the top very quick. So, he needs he needs a big name next. I think Vicente Luque doesn't have any fights lined up, so I think that's a smart call out. It's an interesting fight, certainly a hard one. And yeah, keep your eyes on Jack Della Maddalena. He's definitely, definitely one to watch. Next, we had the main event, which was Yair Rodriguez against Josh Emmett, to which Yair submitted Emmett in the second round. So let's just go back to the first round where Yair Rodriguez was super impressive. We kind of expected the flashy strikes, the video game-esque movement. It's just so nice to see his striking. 
he genuinely does strike and fight like you're playing the UFC video game. But he's not just he's not just doing it at random. They're they're all perfectly set up strikes. His kicks were amazing. The way he was able to control the distance with his kicks, the switch stances, hit the body kicks, keep Emmett away from closing the distance because obviously Josh Emmett has that huge right hand which he's going to be aware of. Using his kicks to keep him at range in the fashion that he did was... It was so satisfying to see. But Yair's movement is what I was most impressed with. The way he was able to... to stay out of danger for the majority of the fight and obviously let's not forget he did get knocked down in the first he did get caught twice which put him down he didn't seem to panic he was still throwing up submissions he was throwing up elbows from his back so he did show an an, an array of skills not just on his feet but I think it's overlooked that his win against Brian Ortega was a submission win even though it was classed as a TKO because of injury, the injury was caused from his submission. So it should be given as a submission win. The dislocation of Ortega's shoulder was caused by Yaya Rodriguez's Kimura. So he won through submission. And if he had a submission win against Ortega on his record, people would probably restrict, respect his submissions way more than they do. So it's kind of nice to see that he did get a submission win. Maybe people will respect his ground game a little bit more. And because of how flashy his strikes is, I think it's quite easy to overlook that he is a well-rounded fighter. And as impressive as he was against Emmett, I would have preferred to see him fight Calvin Qatar. I personally thought Calvin Qatar beat Josh Emmett in what would have been the number one contender fight. I I think Calvin Qatar would have gave us a much more exciting and a closer fight because Qatar has the incredible boxing and the elbows and the striking that he probably would have been able to trade with Yair. I think Calvin Qatar would have been a closer fight and a more exciting one. I do still think Yair would have won just because of his kicks. But yeah, I think that would have made more a more exciting fight. So, we have Volkanovski versus Yair Rodriguez later in the year. The one thing that does annoy me so much is how Yair Rodriguez had the fights. This was only, was it his second or his third fight since 2019? I think this was his third fight since 2019. When you're not active, people forget about you quite quickly. And I've banged on about it so much, this podcast, the need to stay active, but... With someone like Yaya Rodriguez who has the star power, a, a popular fighter from Mexico as well, you have the whole nation. Mexico are very, very passionate fans. You need to stay active. So it did annoy me a little bit when he said he wanted to fight in September. Now, I understand he wants to fight in Mexico and defend the, well, unify the belts there. But get the fight done earlier, especially with Volk wanting to fight three or four more times this year. If he can get the fight with Yair Rodriguez done next earlier in the year, then we get to see the Volkanovski rematch that everybody is harping on about. 
But we'll get to Volkanovski and Islam soon. First, I want to talk about Yair versus Volkan. How they, how they, how they fare. So Yair Rodriguez, believe it or not, actually is taller and has a longer reach than Islam. Now I know that the height and weight discrepancy between Volkan and Islam was talked about a lot before the fight, but Yair Rodriguez is taller and has a longer reach than Islam. So is that something that Volk's going to have to look into in their fight? Is that something that's going to play a narrative prior to it? I'm not sure. I think I think the narrative of Volk versus Islam was so prominent because of the weight, not necessarily the physical attributes in height, in height and reach. But it is something worth noting, especially when someone uses distance and movement so well. Because Volkanovski is also an opponent that uses distance well. So, in some senses, Yair Rodriguez might be a more difficult matchup for Volkanovski than Islam was. With Islam, you know what you're getting. He's going to try and wrestle. Now, albeit he was striking a lot in this fight, which again, I think a lot of people were impressed with his striking. But Yair Rodriguez is so diverse and so dynamic, you don't know what's going to come next. And if we saw... If we see more of what we saw against Josh Emmett and his submission on the ground, if Volkanovski does go for the takedown, he's going to be just as dangerous off his back. So I genuinely do think that is a very, very interesting matchup. Especially if you take into consideration the issues that Volks had with kicks, especially given his size. He doesn't really defend head kicks that well. If you watch the Islam fight, he takes a head kick. He just has one hand. He kind of half blocks it. Max Holloway knocked down Volkanovski with a head kick in one of their fights. And Islam had success with his body kicks as well. So the way in which Yair Rodriguez switches stances and attacks the body and attacks the legs, I think he causes Volkanovski a lot of problems. Now, I'm not saying he wins. We've seen from Volkanovski that he prepares for his fights, his fights incredibly, especially this Islam fight. He has a great team. He has great coaches. So I have no doubt that he'll prepare correctly and he'll know he'll have a plan but it is worth noting that Yair Rodriguez is somebody that will cause problems for sure and finally we've got to the main event which we saw Alexander Volkanovsky going up in weight to fight Islam Makachev for the lightweight championship now Volkanovsky was a huge underdog going into this fight with with respect to Islam I think it was definitely justified based on the way that Islam has been the boogeyman in the division. He's He has the narrative of not fighting many people in the top five. I mean, I think Oliveira is the only person he's fought in the top five, which it is worth noting was ranked pound for pound number three before this fight. So Islam has beat the pound for pound number three and the pound for pound number one in back-to-back fights. But yeah... Islam is being the boogeyman in that division for years. People have avoided fighting him. I don't think it's a matter of he doesn't want to fight people in the top five. I think it's people don't want to fight Islam. Now, of course, having the the blessing of Khabib as being the the next king of the division, so to speak. Volkanovsky taking the risk and going up is you can't respect that man anymore. And he brought the fight to Islam from the first round. Now, 
I scored the fight to Islam. I gave Islam rounds one, two, and four, and Volkanovski three and five. With rounds two and three being pretty close, I think you could swing those those rounds either way. So if somebody scored the fight to Volkanovski, I don't think I would argue it. But I do think that Islam was was pretty clear the winner. Especially if you rewatch the fight, which I did before this podcast. I would recommend to anybody rewatching fights to to rewatch fights without any sound, any commentary, any crowd. Because it does influence your decision, even if it's subconsciously. Or if you're rooting for a particular fighter, then you will give them the close rounds. People who have an investment in a fighter will want to see them win, so they will they will overlook mistakes. They will buy into the, the cheers of the crowd. They will buy into the commentators and things like that. So I think if anybody is a bit unsure, they should go rewatch the fight without any sound or any commentary. And a side note to people, especially on social media, giving Volkanovski the fourth round is honestly bizarre. The argument of the little rabbit punches that Volkanovski was throwing up while he was in the body triangle as being more significant as to controlling your opponent for 3 minutes and 22 seconds. I think that number's correct. Don't quote me. If you have somebody in a body triangle, you are in control of their whole body, their movement. You are winning that fight. Those little rabbit punches are not causing any significant damage. Volkanovski was playing up to the crowd. He was talking to to Islam. He was having fun with it. I was more impressed that he didn't put himself in any danger. With, with someone like Islam on your back for that amount of time, I think Volkanovski did prove that he is unchokable with his, with his no neck. But yeah, that fight was, was, so, was so interesting for me because Islam shined in the striking department. He knocked down Volkanovski a couple of times and his striking from when he first joined the UFC has improved so much. His defense when striking too seemed to be a lot better. His kicks were a little sloppy, but he was having success with them still. And Volkanovski's takedown defense was incredible. Like I just mentioned before, his preparation, especially for this fight, was insane. He has such a good team behind him. They clearly do their homework. And it was just, it was great to see the way he performed. And he backed up everything he said prior to the fight. He said, if you take me down, I'm going to get back up. He he went toe-to-toe with Islam's wrestling. He kept his back off the cage, which I think when you're fighting against the Dagestani-style wrestlers, that's the most important thing. They like to put you up against the cage, keep the fight out in the open. And he did extremely well. He proved a lot of people wrong. And he almost got a finish in that last round. I don't think it was a 10-8 round because I don't think Islam was in any danger of having the fight stopped. I think he was probably one or two like big blows away from having the fight stopped. But I don't think he was in any danger of, you know, the referee was giving him some extra leeway or anything like that. I believe a 10-8 round is scored when the referee could have called the fight. I don't think the referee could have called that fight. 
I don't think I've ever wanted a sixth round more than 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 that fight. If it was Pride rules, maybe we would have had a new champion. A sixth round, Volkanovski going in. He seemed fresh. He didn't tire. His cardio kept up, which when you're defending against a intense wrestler, there's nothing that will test your cardio like constantly getting back up, constantly defending the takedowns. But Volkanovski did lose. I think the decision was fair. The one issue I do have is that Islam is not ranked pound for pound number one. Now, before I get into that, I think Volkanovski is pound for pound number one, in my opinion. He should be pound for pound number one. I just don't think it's fair that Islam isn't ranked pound for pound number one. So, Volkanovski went up in weight. So, you have to give some credit in terms of he's giving up the weight. He's the one taking the risk. So... Pound for pound is essentially if everybody was the same height, the same weight, the same reach, who would be the best based on their skill set? Now, it's it's a made-up ranking. It's just, it's like a fake trophy. But the fighters really care about it, and I guess it's like a nice badge, a nice badge of honor. You don't get any belt for it any kind of reward it's just bragging rights I guess but Volkanovski proved by how competitive this fight was that if Islam was naturally the same weight as Volkanovski then Volkanovski would be better fighter would be the better fighter because Islam is shrinking down to that weight whereas Volkanovski had to bulk up pre-fight to to get to that weight so I think Volkanovski is the pound for pound number one right now but going into this fight Makachev had had nothing to gain other than the pound for pound ranking the whole build up however however poorly promoted it was which let's not even get into that the whole narrative was he puts up the pound for pound ranking, Makachev puts up the belt. Now, Volkanovsky is the one that said that. He said, I'm giving, I'm putting up my ranking and challenging for the title. So, and on the UFC's social media pages, they were tweeting out the, the new pound for pound number one, the best in the world, things like that. And then when the official rankings came out on Tuesday... They didn't give him the number one spot. So I do think that Islam is has been has been done a little bit with that. But I'm not mad at it because contrary to what I've just said, I'm not mad at it. I just think it's unfair. Because I believe that Volkanovsky is number one. So I guess it's kind of a brave thing of the UFC to do if they're taking a stand and they're just like, no, after that performance, we're going to just stick him at number one anyway. He proved he's the best. Then I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. I don't mind. I just feel like Islam has been done a little bit dirty because the whole build up, the whole premise of the fight was he's fighting for pound for pound. Volkanovski's fighting for the title. And I mean, you have to give Islam credit. He's just beaten 
Oliveira, who was ranked three pound for pound. Then he's traveled to the other side of the world to fight Volkanovski in Volkanovski's backyard for the first time defending the belt. Not many people would do that. So we have to give credit where it's due. And now we do have the IV the IV gate situation to quickly get into before we finish. Now Dan Hooker, if we're if you're listening and you're not familiar with what happened, is Dan Hooker took to Twitter claiming that Islam had used an IV drip to rehydrate before the fight, which was made illegal in 2015 when USADA came in. Now, before we get into that, I think the fact that IV drips are illegal is more dangerous than if they were legal. Some of these fighters are fully depleting their body of all water in it to, to a disgustingly dangerous level that an IV drip to rehydrate probably seems the healthiest way to do so. But anyway, so it was banned in 2015 when USADA came to the UFC to stop fighters doing that. And the only way you could use an IV drip to rehydrate is if it was done for medical purposes, delivered by a medical professional for medical reasons, which includes extreme dehydration due to a weight cut. So even though it's banned, it's not illegal to do. You just have to have it administrated by a professional, recommended by a professional. So it's kind of a loophole in in the rules. So it's not illegal. It's just reminds me of kind of what we all assume McGregor is doing with his time off. Takes himself out of the USADA testing pool, takes a bunch of PEDs, and then puts himself back in when he's recovered. Now, there's no evidence to what I just said, but if you follow McGregor on any social media, you'll understand what I'm talking about. But back to the IV gate. So, Dan Hooker didn't provide any evidence, but Ali... So, first, actually, let's go back. Let's go back. Islam's team member said that they didn't take an IV drip. He said we didn't do it. But there is clear markings on Islam's arm where an IV drip would be put into into his skin. They said it was for a mandatory blood test that they did on Wednesday of fight week. Which, which would make sense, right? But his team came out and said that they did not they did not take any IV drips. But Ali Abdelaziz, who is Islam Makhachev's manager said, and I quote, For all those idiots out there, any fighter under the UFC banner can take two to three litres of IV as long as it's done by a nurse or professional. He then later deleted that tweet and Ariel Helwani replied, Yes, he deleted it because someone, I would think, told him he was incriminating himself with that tweet. You can't take two to three litres by a professional. It's 100 millilitres per 12 hours. So they're already changing the story. They they are saying we didn't take the IV drip. Now, Ali Abdulaziz didn't say Islam took the IV, but he's strongly Im- implying that he did. And the fact that he deleted that tweet later shows that I think he realized he messed up. 
But what is worth noting is I mentioned that it is legal to have an IV drip if it is administrated by a professional. However, some fighting commissions don't allow it. For example, the Australian Fighting Commission they were using and fighting under in Perth, they do not allow any IV drips. And they also do not allow saunas to be used for weight cutting, for what that's worth. So, the fact that they are talking about the statistics and the logistics of how how much you can use to rehydrate with an IV drip is redundant if the commission doesn't allow it which in this case they don't. So the punishment is suspension up to two years. And I personally don't think anything's going to be done with it. I think it will all kind of die down soon, but I am very intrigued to see how it pans out. I am keeping my eye on it. Let me know what you guys think. Do you think Islam used it? Do you think he cheated? What do you think will happen? I would be very curious to see what everybody else thinks. But... It would be a shame if if anything did happen because of that. It would just kind of take away the whole excitement of the fight. He would probably be stripped of the title. Then what 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 limbo are we in there? Who does you have to give Volk the, the fight for the vacant title against who? Benil Darush maybe? He's gotta be the most deserving. Oliveira, maybe? I don't know. I'd be intrigued to see to see what happens. Anyway, that is my recap of UFC 284. I am going to be posting these podcasts weekly. This one is a little bit later. Has been released a little bit later in the week due to some technical issues. I will be releasing them earlier in the week. And yeah, if you are still here, thank you for listening. I would appreciate it if you subscribe to my YouTube channel, followed me on Instagram gladiators then mma i'll post my links in the description and i will see you all soon thank you for listening